Everyone and welcome to Ladies Night, the official podcast of U.S. Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Shahadi, and you are listening to the artist Huga of HugaMusica.com, and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh, Capablanca! His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at U.S. Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our U.S. Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ladies Night. Well, I'm Jennifer Shahadi. And you guys know that in my work with U.S. Chess Women, I'm always looking for people who show unusual ways that chess has helped them succeed beyond the board. And today I have a perfect person to illustrate this. She is actually a childhood friend. She's a producer, the founder of Renegade Entertainment, Courtney Lauren Penn. Right now, she's a player in Hollywood, but she's also a chess player. In fact, she was ranked in the top 50 female players in the country for six years. She played in the very first Super Nationals. And recently, she partnered with actor Thomas Jame, who you might know from Hung or Boogie Nights, to run a movie and TV production company, Renegade. Courtney's already made two movies during the pandemic, and I'm so delighted that she made time to speak with me in between the other movies and TV series she's making right now. Hello, Courtney. Welcome to Ladies Night. So nice to see you. I wish we were face to face, but thank you so much for letting me come on the show and for having me. So tell me a little bit about your new company that's so exciting. You founded it in 2019, Renegade Entertainment, and the byline is that character is revealed in a storm. Um, Where did the idea for your company and, and this name come from? It's really interesting. You know, Thomas, as a creator, um, actually as an actor, as a director, he himself has led a kind of renegade career path. And we had connected years ago and we sort of were drawn to the same kind of of stories, the same kind of heroes, sort of the irreverent um, lone wolf um, working, you know, to redeem himself was a sort of familiar theme that we found ourselves drawn to time and time again. And there were a few scripts that we were talking about working on together. And in 2018, um, we were talking about the idea of formalizing a content partnership. I was pregnant with my son. And in December of 2018, through April, actually, of 2019, I was hospitalized um, with him. It was a very, very difficult time. You know, we've all been locked up for the last year. We've all been sort of restricted. We've, we've, we've faced seemingly insurmountable, ever-changing and, you know, circumstances and, 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 and unpredictable ones. And for me at that time, this was one of the greatest, most unpredictable things that you could have imagined. And I found myself in a hospital in a room with a very tiny window, unable to really communicate with the outside world because of the risk of losing my son. And 
I didn't really know at first. So I'll never forget when I checked into the hospital and they gave me the sheet and they said, you're going to check out in April of 2019. And it was December of 2018. And I thought, you can't be serious. There must be a misunderstanding. It was a shock. And in the midst of all of that, I was unable to work. And going through that challenge and facing that sort of every day and being incredibly isolated and in a very physically arduous and medically precarious situation, there was someone who came to speak to me um, as I was seeking counsel. One of the things that I try to do most is seek counsel when, when one has questions about facing the unknown. And this person came into the room. They spoke with me at length about the situation and the challenges. And they sat back and they said to me, one line, after listening to me for a while, character is revealed in a storm. And that sentence became, that line, that thought, that seed became the thing that allowed me to face that situation. My son was ultimately born full term and incredibly healthy. And I'm incredibly grateful forever to the team at UCLA for, for that. That seed spoke to me and resonated deeply in everything that I'd ever spoken to Thomas about creatively. It became a very defining factor. Um, and conflict inherently is what makes storytelling interesting, makes people interesting, makes chess a game. And that was it. That just was the thing for me that was a guiding light. And so if anything that we strive to do at our company is to tell stories in which character is tested and then it is revealed in a storm. I had never been in bed that long. So it was a very, you know, when you have to go back and then rehabilitate yourself after being prostrate for four and a half months and having had a baby. It's a very interesting thing. You have to, you have to really examine yourself and what, you're, what you want your life to look like after that. Wow. Thank you. God, you went. You had such a great team in a hospital. I mean, it sounds like a miracle that you were able to. The baby was born healthily at at full term, and you started your company. Uh, that that is just such an incredible turnaround. What did you do for that three months? Did you get to like read, listen to podcasts? Did you go back to your chess roots? Because it actually seems like a time that chess might be kind of fun. It was interesting. I think, you know, everyone asked me, oh, did you get to watch series? Were you reading? And it was, you know, I have to say that it was the maintenance of a calm that was required and, you know, distracting of the mind. So I, I didn't watch any content, actually. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. They had this monitor strapped to me. And if there was anything remotely stressful, they could see a contraction. So they would run in and say, what are you doing? What are you reading? What is it that you're watching? What are you, you know, and I had to cut it off. So chess became, I, I downloaded the, an app, a chess playing app on my phone for the first time in many years. It was, I didn't want to try Sudoku. I did not want to uh, try any other, any other game. But chess, it was the first time I returned to it usually around two or three in the morning when I couldn't sleep. And I would just play against the app, you know, from around 3 a.m. to around 7 a.m. for several months. And I have to say that there was something in that process which was deeply, deeply, deeply satisfying and pure and relaxing. So you played against the app. You didn't play against other humans. I, I just played against the computer. Yeah, I just played against the computer. Um, I didn't want to put the pressure of, of, you know, I had to really be able to just kind of leave at any moment. I didn't want to play in again timed game against people. It just wasn't the right environment for that. But, I, but the, there was something really peaceful about being able to just play against the computer. No one around you, no one watching the game, no one calculating a rating. It was just for the absolute moment of what the game can deliver, which sometimes is a very, very peaceful respite. 
That makes sense. Although I have to say you have a very high standard of fair play. I'm sure if Danny, <laughs> Danny Wrench is listening to this, he's going to be very impressed. Because like it's, it seems like a pretty valid excuse to time out on a game. Like, oh, I'm I, delivering. I, I, th- I, think, I think I'm allowed to do it just, just in that circumstance. <laughs> Exceptional. Did you play while you were pregnant in competition? Um, I, you know, I, I did play a lot of bullet games, um, and I'm not good at bullet. I'm not a good bullet player, Really, but I found that sometimes it, it just kind of relieved the stress because, you know, it was just like something to, um, you know, pass the time when I was, when I was at home for that like last month or so. I really like that. It, were, were you able to find an AI that was an approximately your level, so you would win the, win half and lose half, or did you not really care about that? I had no expectation when I first opened it. It was just sort of out of it. It's 3 a.m., and I haven't played the game in so long. What is it going to feel like? And I opened the app, and I thought, I'm just going to start at medium. I won the first game, and I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked. And then I sort of, you know, kept... Rent, uh, you know, ratcheting it up a little bit, and then I started losing, and then I felt okay about that for a while. Um, and then I, and then you know, when I felt like I needed a little boost, I, I went back to medium. But we played well against each other. It didn't play book actually. I played both sides of the board, uh, black and white, and I alternated. But it did not. It went directly out of book. It was a very daring uh, computer. So you spent like four hours a day playing chess and usually in the middle of the night. So pretty typical chess player hours just because you weren't able to sleep at that time. I could not sleep. I had things beeping. If you've ever had an extended stay in the hospital or a stay at any kind in the hospital, they have every kind of monitor on you. And if you're pregnant, they have too many things beeping at you um, and your mind is going. So yes, it was a lovely reprieve to return to the game. And that was the most concentrated time I think I'd ever played. I'd played chess since the last time I was in competition in my early 20s. I developed a new appreciation for time spent completely alone is is like, and I think that for any chess player, I think we spend a lot of time with ourselves, you know, for a competitor like yourself, I think it's also a really interesting conversation, you know, conversation point, you know, what's the most trying thing as a competitor you've, you've faced and either failed at that informed you and your professional career. I think a big fear that I've always had in poker and chess is just, um, you know, blowing it on the biggest stage. And you know, blundering right in the in the in the key moments, and that's a pr- pretty typical fear. Um, and that you know, having that fear causes you to get into time pressure, and that uh, the fear of humiliation in a big stage, right? That's a big one, and that's why people are so afraid of um, public speaking, right? Yeah, it's it's. Just, so how do you how did you cope with that? What was sort of what are some of your? I'm so curious because to compete at your level, right? You're you're an Olympian. And so, you know, basically, you're that you compete at that level. So, you know, I think for a, someone who's more of an amateur, I think it's fascinating to understand how the game sort of informs how you physiologically prepare to be on the big stage. I think you just you just have to get better. And I think that when you have a lot of psychological fears and um, potentially issues with confidence, like I had, it just requires an even higher level of study and preparation um, so that you can kind of model those situations, like, you know, put complicated positions in the board and pretend that it's like a key moment. I did that so many times. Like I would put a Dovoretsky position on the board and pretend that it was like a real game. And I was like a hero when I found the right moves, you know, in a small amount of time. Give yourself a time, a time limit to do it. You'd say, here's the position, genuinely have, you know, mm-hmm. X amount of minutes or seconds to figure out the solution. 
to yeah. give yourself that charge. Mm-hmm. And it's never, it's never really like the real thing though. It's never quite like the real thing. I think that no matter how much you study in training, it's always a little bit different in the arena, but it's still, I think that people who have that performance anxiety, um, well, you know, if you have those anxieties, you just, you have maybe have to study a little more than the, than a person who doesn't. And also, you know, just really try to think about it and tackle it head on. I mean, of course, these are not like the serious problems of life and death that you dealt with. But I, I think that that's one of the appealing things about chess, that the intensity of it when you're playing in it, your heart rate, it's kind of like this model of a miniature life and death situation that, of course, doesn't matter at all. It actually doesn't matter at all, right? It's not life or death. But in this like four hour time frame, it is. You can then like use that to kind of like build and test your character. Did you ever go onto a stage in an, in an empty sort of space to kind of practice being on the stage, imagining people in the audience to help deal with that anticipation of the anxiety of performance? I do sometimes. I mean, I know a lot of chess players. You see a lot of chess players um, go to the board very early, right? It, they'll, they'll show up five, 10, sometimes even 15 minutes early just so that they can be there when nobody else is there. And I think that that's a really smart, really smart habit because once the game starts, especially now that chess is becoming more big time, more Hollywood, if you will, um, there's flashing lights, cameras, people uh, making announcements, asking you a question right before the game. So the pre, pre-game, it actually makes a lot of sense to use that as a time to get into like your your flow state, if you will, or your pre-flow state. Learning about distraction. I want to ask, um, after you delivered your son and you started your company, and then uh, coronavirus hit soon thereafter. Right. <laughs> so I, I got out for one dinner, two dinners, um, you know, before, before the pandemic hit. And um, you've still managed to be pretty productive during this time, because I guess a lot of your work also deals with writing and development, and you were able to be um, quite productive with your work despite the pandemic. Well, you know, it was really interesting when it hit, um, we were prepping a pitch for a big series to go out. And um, I, this was February, March, like before everything officially shut down in March. And I said to the team, to the writers, to the director, to the to the showrunner, to all the agents, of which there were like 15, I said, guys, you know, I have a feeling that things are going to be shutting down, you know, imminently here. I really think we should hold off on, on pitching. And I think everyone was so hopeful and optimistic that it was going to remain open. They said, oh, no, 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 full steam ahead, full steam ahead. I said, I really, I really believe that we are about to face something of which we're unfamiliar with. Let's just maybe hold a beat because this is a big package. We don't want to misplace it or take it out in the wrong environment. And, um, you know, literally the next day that agencies physically closed, everyone closed shop in LA, everything shut down and the world froze as we all, as we all became really quickly aware. And I think I have to say um, that having been locked up and shut in with a life or death situation, not for myself, but from from my son um, the year before, you know, when it happened, I almost was just like, okay, what is the crucible of this experience? My first thought was, what is the crucible of this experience going to do for all of us in this moment? We're all facing the unknown. Who are we going to become as a result of this? I don't think it's going to be a short-term issue. I think it's going to be long-term. And I said, let's just reorient. Let's refocus. 
And a lot of other people, I think, fro- I think you know, and understandably so, because no one knew. I mean, we saw companies closing. We saw a lot of things uh, changing very rapidly. But I think that because of the experience I'd had the year before, didn't make me in any way more wise, by the way. It was just sort of like, a, okay, been through a sort of very traumatic situation in which I had to cope with the unknown every single day. That's familiar. Mm-hmm. So what helped me then? Okay, let's let's focus on what we can control, which is in-house, you know, while we're ordering in groceries and trying to cope with what's happening outside of us, what can we do? Let's create what we, you know, what we can create and what we feel inspired to create. So we were lucky enough, I think, you know, we were able to go back to work. We were able to plan tentatively. We shot actually a um a short, a short micro series uh, in March of 2020 while on lockdown in the first month and a half. It was like a 22 episode, one minute short series um, that Thomas directed and started and, you know, was produced via Zoom in his house. And it's really darling. It's about to start its festival run, actually. And then we shot three movies as soon as we were able to get back into production, which was October. We shot one film and then November and December back to back to back. Luckily, that was because I think of the planning and the expectation of the abnormal being normal for a long time. Yeah, that's a really valuable life skill you, you got from crisis, certainly being able to recognize that things aren't always going to be the same. I mean, I think that's what that's why people didn't quite believe that this would be so so serious because every, everything changed. I mean, one of my pre-production notes is that you played in the very first Supernationals. And I just would never have imagined that the Supernationals or that the Nationals would would not take place for a year because it's such a fixture on the calendar. It's just yeah. so hard to imagine. It's it, because it hasn't happened in our lifetimes, but being able to recognize those moments because it's possible, you know, we haven't lived in it, lived through a big war in the United States. And so this, this type of change, this type of sea change is the first time we've really seen the world just completely change in terms of our everyday life. So quickly too. And actually we spoke before the pandemic hit, I think. It was right in that window. I think it was. Yeah, actually you're right. I think it was around February of last year-ish, like just before it all kind of crashed down, right? Was it something like that, I think? Yeah, because you wanted to give back a little bit and, you know, speak to some girls and women in chess. And of course that is a big part of what I do and actually has really accelerated since the pandemic because I feel like people need that even more right now, that community. You were able to actually um, go to an event in Los Angeles um, organized by a really wonderful organizer, Jay Stallings. And that was, was a wonderful event. That was so, thank you so much for thinking of me. I loved that event with Jay. I mean, he put together something so special for the girls that attended. It was, yeah. And you spoke to them a little bit about your your movie career and how chess helped you a little bit with like- Storytelling, yeah. Can you give us a, a version of what you told them? Sure. I, you know, I talked about the need to be somewhat fearless as a, as a woman in the game and not give way to preconceptions. And, you know, I think I had, I told them an anecdote. I think I told them to not be afraid of failure basically, but I think I did it. I tried to make it in an age appropriate sort of way that it was sort of the most challenging thing that I had to deal with in, in, in film um, and has been sort of preconceptions of, of, of women and, and their, you know, their, their roles in dealing with sort of an older hierarchy. But I was really, really sort of well attuned to that having come from a patriarchal chess world, which I know, Jen, you probably have had to deal with as well. So I, I just, it was sort of this, you know, cast off all expectations, do not be afraid to fail. And, you know, it, like every, every loss is going to teach you something great and fun and like 
you know, learn from the joy of being great at, at trying, whether, whatever that means. And I, and I think that that, you know, I remember being a girl and being afraid to lose against a guy. I mean, I remember being a teenager at the Supernationals. I remember one round in particular, and I, I, I believe I was a stronger player than my opponent. But he had a couple of, of, of guy friends and they just came and they stood over me, you know, behind me. They didn't have the rules then about how far back you had to stand from, from boards. And I think we were at the fifth or sixth board. And I remember being nervous and intimidated and reacting to the presence of his friends sort of surrounding the board. You know, and I grew up playing in Washington Square Park and I grew up, you know, with, you know, as a woman in chess, it's unusual to see a young girl playing in the park. As you know, like people tend to watch. So that wasn't uncomfortable. But for some reason, I'll never forget this game. And I was nervous and the nerves impacted the game completely. I hung a rook in a completely winning position. I lost my chance at uh, tying for, I think it was second or third place in the Super Nationals. And um, I was devastated. And it, it, you know, it came from this place of feeling nervous as as a girl, and uh, I, I really wanted them to know that it's okay. Make the move, take the loss. Don't let it be about that. I love that. That's a great story about the Super Nationals. I that was in Nashville, Tennessee, I think, right? Or maybe it was Knoxville. It was in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. We drove down. I remember Josh Waitskin was there, and you know, interestingly, like you know, if you want to talk for a moment about Hollywood interceding. And helping bring chess a new life, like Queen's Gambit is doing now. Um, you know, uh, Surging Robbie Fisher certainly was what led to, I believe, the advent of both the Chessathon and the Supernationals at that time. So Hollywood has given a boost to chess multiple times, and I and you know, Josh was hugely inspirational, and he's a tremendous figure uh, in terms of the art of learning and stuff. And uh, he was there actually at that Supernationals, and I, I remember that drive. I remember, I remember that tournament. Quite well. Did you play? I no. was there. I do remember it. I don't remember how I did, which probably means it didn't go that well. But um, yeah, I was. I was there. That is a really, a really a great story to share with the girls. And what else do you feel like film and chess have in common? Because a producer is a very big role, right? Like I remember once Stanley Kubrick said something about how chess is a three that filmmaking is like three dimensional chess, and I wonder like whether you see any aspects of that and like the planning and the magnitude of the task. hundred percent. You know, um, there's actually a really well-known filmmaker named John McTiernan. He directed Die Hard and um, the original Predator. He was a phenomenal genius. And, uh, you know, we, there's a project that we're, that we're looking at working uh, on with him. And when he was training, and this is something I wanted to ask you about actually. So when he got into film and he went to get his, his degree, a mentor of his said to him, I want you to watch a film and I want you to tell me the shots. And so he said, oh, okay, sure, sure, sure. Well, the film opens, you know, with a wide shot of this and blah, blah, blah. He goes, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want to hear the approximation of the shots. I want you to write down shot for shot the entire film from memory. You know, and I thought about this exercise. You know, some films, you know, have 600 shots and some of the more complex films have 1,500, right? A Kubrick film is, is probably in the middle somewhere around eight or 900 shots. Can you imagine watching a film and memorizing it beat for beat? You have to have an unbelievably mobile, you know, mind. And I think of all the players who can play simultaneous chess or, you know, blindfold simultaneous chess, that ability absolutely is the same art form. The, the, the way the mind has to be so facile to accomplish 
telling a film as a director, as an editor, the ability to see where this thread is taking you in so many cuts, the impact of it. And I think that chess is one of the greatest, greatest art forms in terms of its similarity to filmmaking. I think it's one of the closest uh, that I could compare it to. That's amazing. It has a three-act structure, right? The beginning, the middle, and the end. You know, like the, 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 literally the game, the way we analyze it too, it has a structure. The middle game, the end game, the opening. It's familiar. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's why chess players and tend to be good writers when they write about their games because the story's built in. So they don't have to create it from scratch. Oh, that's interesting. You're right. The narrative of that, the narrative structure is there. Yeah. Like if, like Bobby Fischer, I mean, he wasn't a trained writer, but my mem- my 60 memorable games is just like a masterpiece, really, right? I mean, it's just such a brilliant book. And it's because those games all have the story embedded. Embedded in them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're a writer. You, you you probably, like when you wrote, were writing, I remember your first book was Chess Bitch, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. I mean, how long did, how long did that take you? And did the, did actually being a player help make you make the writing process easier for you? Do you think, or and the writing process is very difficult, no matter what, I mean, that I, I, I think that it was hard to write. Um, but I did take a lot of time off. Um, I wasn't doing, I was obsessed with writing this book because I felt like it was important. Um, there wasn't a lot of books about women in chess. It was Mm -hmm. nonfiction and it was like interweaving my own story with like interviews and history. So it it didn't necessarily have those, that that three act structure that I would need to pursue if I was writing like a fictional story. What it was is just, it's so much work that, you know, as a chess player, knowing how um, massive the scale is of actually getting all your openings in order and studying end games and becoming a really good player. At the end of it, if you knew how much work it was going to take, you you might chicken out, right? <laughs> it's absolutely true. As someone who knows thyself well enough to know that I'm not a writer, um, I completely understand that because I've tried. And that's something I've definitely, I'm in awe of the people who can accomplish, accomplish it. Now, chess players are obsessed with titles. And one thing that I've always found really fascinating is I have also dipped my toe in, you know, production and writing waters and Hollywood. Um, Can you shed some light on all of the differences? There's producer, executive producer, produced by, so many different types of producers, let alone um, director and story by. Um, I was, of course, spying on your IMDb before this. Please do. Um, It's really interesting. I think it comes down to contribution and interpretation of a contribution. The unions dictate the writing credits a lot. So the WGA... Um, is the Writers Guild, and they are the ones who dictate the credits for story by and for, you know, written by. And um, a few directors who also write or some renowned auteurs will get the credit called a film by. So that is a prestige sort of label for the, on the creative side, a film by. And those, um, and, you know, on the producing side, it was really funny because a lot of people say, what is a producer? Like, what, what, what is that? You're kind of like the architect, but you really want to stay out of the way of actually doing the design work and bring the creatives who are great at that around. And you really kind of want to nurture and support them. That's kind of your job. So, and, and also keep the focus on the ultimate, you know, every, every single film is a, is a startup, business startup from, you know, you're starting a business from scratch and then you're selling it and allowing it to have a, a complete and full life. So every single venture is a startup business, it's just end to end. As the producer, you're saying the director is the person who's going to have the ultimate creative vision for this, who can interpret the script, 
whether they've written it or someone else has. And I want to support bringing together a cast and a distribution plan that is going to help actually get it made, but also serve the art in the best way that you can in an ever-shifting environment, right? So like a few years, 10 or 15 years ago, a producer meant something completely sort of different. You know, you could go to a studio with an actor and a script and get paid a big overhead deal just just for bringing in the package and walking it in the door. Now, you know, a producer is at once, uh, uh, has to understand the financing, has to understand the distribution, has to understand sales, has to understand the value of certain actors, have to understand how to kind of, you know, help but not impede and, and sort of manage, you're basically a manager of, of that process. And, and you know, um, I, think, I think women are, are incredible at it. And I think that's something that when, young, when younger women and girls who are looking to study film ask me, you know, questions about the industry, I, I think that women, and it's not, it's not a sexist statement, uh, it, men are great at it too, but I just think that there is something about the nurturing nature of women that allows them to be really good producers. And then the pr- the producer does is the one that gets the Oscar, right, for best picture. So sometimes here's the thing, though: if you're, if you're the executive, and that's where the credit. So executive producer versus producer, which you asked about. So executive producer means you've brought an essential element to the film, just one, right? So if you're, it could just be you brought the big star, you brought you know a third of the financing, you brought you know something integral to the project. That's what executive producer can mean contribution one significant one or several. Producer means you were a part of the process from beginning to end. So there you go. That's how you can look at those two different things. So for the for the awards, it's usually the producer, executive producers usually can't get an award because they're not deemed to having been there from the moment one to last moment. So that's that's a big difference. That makes a lot of sense. And it and it but it, at the same time it's a little confusing to the layman because Executive producer sounds fancier than producer because. Oh, and, and, and I'm sorry. <laughs> let, me, let me just say that the rules flip for TV. So, okay. So, while I just said that to you, that's true for film. <laughs> In TV, you want to be the executive producer because that means you've done everything from end to end. It flips. It sounds like it's almost deliberately confusing so that people on the outside can't quite understand it, uh, which, you know, is true yes. about most fields. <laughs> like, yes, I, I completely, I completely agree. I find that it is actually rather, ar- I do think it's arbitrary. I mean, I have EP credit on a number of films where I feel, I mean, I did produce, I have associate producer credit on a film that I actually truly, you know, produced. So it's, you have to take your ego out of it a, a little bit and just say, okay, look, contributed, there's a credit there. Let's go with God and, 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 and hope that we all contributed to make the best version of what we could and controlled the piece of it that we had, were able to. That's the frustrating thing about film that's different than chess. You know, imagine you're sitting playing one game against an incredible opponent but you've got a hundred people that you're alternating moves with. You know, you're saying, I trust you all, or even 15 people. Let's say it's a small movie. And you're saying, okay, I'm going to make the first move and you're Jen Jihadi. And then you've got to trust the other 14 people downwind of you to play your game till it gets back to you. That's the difference. Um, you know, chess is uh, mano and mano film, not so much. That's a brilliant analogy. I love that. I have to definitely use that. And I feel like it also applies to so many things outside film. And that's why chess players can sometimes struggle with entrepreneurship because they're so brilliant, but working with a team is a completely different skill that you don't always have to do with chess. Sure, in the Olympiad, but at the end of the day, there is a lot of individual competition. 
Um, mm-hmm. I guess you could stretch and say that like your chess pieces are your team, but they're not. And that definitely does not work in film. I've tried it. It does not work. The pieces don't go where you want them to go. <laughs> That's a really great analogy. I don't think I'll look at um, the filmmaking the same anymore. No, please don't. That's that's what I'm here to, to do is to break all of the uh, the, the preconceptions. <laughs> well, one last question. Um, you know, we we know so many people in Hollywood love film. I mean, sorry, so many people in Hollywood love chess. But is there anybody that would surprise us that loves chess that you've encountered over the years? I'm sure you know Wesley Snipes loves chess. Are you a great story about Wesley and chess? Yeah, sure. So we did a film together called Gala Walkers, and um, it's basically Blade, an una- a supernatural version of Blade in the desert, killing zombies, Wesley, shot in Africa, incredible adventure. But anyway, so we, can- we reconnected with Wesley years, years later when the film uh, was sold to Lionsgate and all that, and then uh, we reconnected, and we hadn't seen him in-, in years. So Wesley comes to the meeting, um, which we had set up, and you know he's a brilliant, brilliant man. Oh my God, he's incredibly brilliant. He comes into the room. This is the cutest thing in the world. He comes in carrying a bag, he comes in and he sits down and he says, I, my brother was there, Brandon, who you know. He says, Courtney and Brandon, I'm, I'm so honored to, 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 to be here with you. I have a favor to ask. And my brother and I are looking at each other. We're thinking, well, this is flipped on its head. Um, I'm we're so honored to meet Wesley and talk, and, and talk about, there's a new project we were going to do with him. And so he said, I have, I have these books. Would, would you please autograph them for me? And Brandon and I looked at each other. I said, well, we're not world, we're not world famous chess players, you know? Um, and he said, no, 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 please. I respect your contribution to the game. And I respect how you guys have played in the brother sister thing. Please sign the books. So he takes out this stack of chess books. They, certainly we didn't write them because we haven't written any. So I feel bad for whoever the authors of the books were because we were, we all, we, we signed on them. So we wrote, we wrote notes to his kids because his children, he was introducing his children to chess, which was incredible. And so they've been playing from a young age and he wanted to bring them the books. So we autographed the books and we wrote notes to his, his children and he took a video of it. And I was in this moment thinking, wh- one of my childhood heroes, Wesley Snipes, is, is actually photographing me signing books for him and his children. That's what chess does. It like flips everything on its head. And it was a really surreal moment and really darling. And I will love Wesley forever for that because it was just, and after that, you know, we had the best meeting and he signed on to a series with us. But it was like, it was just such an incredible moment. And um it's that's a great chess story. Oh my god, that's awesome! Was this so? This was recent. You mean this was oh a few years ago. And you and there's a series that you guys worked on out yet, or no? It's not. It's not out yet. We're figuring out where to where to take it. It's a series based on Gala Walkers, the the film. Oh, that's amazing. That's a great story. You know, I always tell people that one of the most underrated thing about chess is its networking potential, especially now after like the Queen's Gambit, because whether it's business or Hollywood. You might get a meeting with somebody or just impress somebody. Like, obviously, you're already super well-connected. But for people who aren't, it it could definitely be a door opener, right, to be really good at chess. I think it's a playing field thing. You know, I think that, especially with celebrities, the idea of meeting anyone across the board, and that's the greatest thing about chess. Like, you know, as you know, a child can play an older person. It's, It's ignorant of... Of, of, of all things, um, you know, that are sort of superficial. It's just, it's just two people sitting at a board, no matter what their background is or success in life. You know, I think that it's one of those great levelers. And I think that that's what makes it such a great conversation opener and something to share with, you know, anybody. And I was going to ask you, one of the things I wanted to ask you so badly, what does Hollywood get wrong about 
chess? Like, what do you think is remaining? Now, I don't, you've probably seen the Queen's Gambit. So after that, what, what do you think Hollywood mostly gets wrong about the game and competition? And what do you think is a story that should be told? That's a great question. And I think that obviously the Queen's Gambit, as I've been on record saying many times, is was absolutely wonderful. And with the help of Pandolfini and Gary Kasparov, they got very little wrong. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about this because I'm working on a new book and I, I was talking to my agent today. And I think that one thing that can sometimes be problematic in chess stories is that they're always about the individual rising above circumstances, which is beautiful stories. And I think they're most of them are wonderful. But the fact that that's all, that seems to be very, if you look at them, many of them are about that exactly. You can kind of get the sense that chess is maybe now being used as a, as a symbol for pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. I don't know. I was thinking about that the other day and thinking like, not everybody is, you know, Beth Harmon or Fiona Mutassi. A lot of people need a bigger push. And that's something I was thinking about that maybe, uh, a story that kind of encapsulates that a social change, like somehow how it could relate to uh, what, what was that beautiful story that Disney did? Queen of Catway. Yeah, that was a great. I felt like that that was uh, that was a really. I loved. I loved that chess story. I thought that that was really well done. Yeah, she came to my girls' club the other day. Actually, she did really. Yeah, she was. She was wonderful. The girls just loved her. Well, she goes to school at New- Northwest University now. She's graduating in May. Okay. Fiona Mutesi. And she's really inspiring me, obviously, like you saw the movie. But now that she's been studying in university, she's become less shy because I met her maybe 10 years ago when the book came out, The Queen of Catway. Okay. And she was a lot shyer. But now that she's opening up, I mean, uh, the brilliance that this woman um, has, like, I, I'm just really looking forward. She's only 25 or something right now to what else like she has in store. I think that chess also, um, for introverts, I've noticed, has the ability to open up. And I, this isn't about her personally. I was just saying that I think that I've noticed that it does allow a greater vocabulary or some kind of um, doors become opened if you're if you haven't if if you tend to be introverted. I think that chess can be a great door opener to your mind, to the discipline of learning, to a certain fearlessness about, um, you know, going up against certain circumstances. And, and I think that that's, that probably a lot of the people that I see played, who played young, who went on to do great things. I, I really feel that a lot of that fearlessness kind of came from the healthy competition and, and, and being able to play it across the board or confront it across the board. And as for stories such as that haven't been told, obviously like period picks, just because chess has been along for so long. So it has that uniqueness that a lot of other games don't have. You know, you can't tell a, a period pick about StarCraft, right? <laughs> Whereas like <laughs> chess, like- Are there any great historic, you know, sort of moments that are real, a real life that should be shown, talked about? Well, you know, there's like the the early world chess championships, like Steinitz, I mean, Paul Morphy. You know, the, I think a lot of the reasons these movies have never been made is because, or even just like mid- medieval chess and like trying to dig up some of those stories. Um, like when the queen became the most powerful piece um, during the reign of Queen Isabella. The reason these stories haven't been made in you, because I talked to William Horbeck. I know Bill, yeah. Yeah, you know Bill, right? Um, because he was also involved in searching for Bobby Fischer. And he said that people didn't think chess movies could make money. So obviously period picks means big money, right? Like a lot of money has to get invested. 
Right. The budget's a little bigger. Yeah. I mean, he, that, that project is, you know, cause you talked to him and it took like 20 years to get, to get made from its original version. Yeah. And I think that it takes the, uh, the right interpretation in the right moment, but I'm so glad for him. He got it made. Yeah. And he told me it was because they didn't think it would, it would make money. Um, and now of course, I think that has flipped as it's made more money than almost any series in Netflix history. So I think that like some of these stories are going to get funded. I mean, I, 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 I'm aware that there's a lot of projects floating around, right? That's great. I've always wanted to find a great story. So I'm looking for the right chess one for, for Renegade. Oh yeah. I'm sure you'll find it. I mean, Stephen King loved the Queen's Gambit too. He's never written a chess novel though, has he? No, he hasn't, but we're definitely putting chess boards in Gate. Oh, I would love to see Stephen King write a chess novel. Although it'd probably give me nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just starting to think like Stephen King and chess and like what kind of things would happen in that, like the one piece on the board, which is, which is actually like um, possessed. Oh gosh. I, I don't know. It sounds scary, but I'm, I'm sure whatever he came up with would be absolutely amazing. We're, we're coming up with Stephen King inspired ideas for chess novels. Whatever it is he came up with, I'm sure it would give me, give me and a new generation of chess players nightmares, but also probably attract many people to it. Anyway, I am so, I, this has been such an inspiring conversation. And for people who want to like stay posted on what you're doing with Renegade, I know you guys are on Instagram and where else can we stay posted with what you're up to, Courtney? We're on uh, Instagram at We Are Renegades, and we're on Facebook uh, with We Are Renegades with a Z. We're on Instagram as We Are Renegades with an S, and that's where we are. You can find us there, and we share stuff as soon as we're, we're able to. Thank you so much for having me. This was an amazing conversation. It was so great to connect. I know. I can't wait to see you in person. Lost Next time I'm in Los Angeles or you come over to the East Coast, New York is so close to Philadelphia. Let me know. I will absolutely let you know. I promise. Can't wait to see you. Thank you so much, Courtney Lauren Penn, for being our guest on Ladies Night. And we will definitely stay posted with Renegade Entertainment. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you. If you like what we're doing at U.S. Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our U.S. Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The U.S. Chess suite of podcasts, including Ladies Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. chess podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be ladies' night. Now according to Sockfish, I got it all wrong After slightly Dear Capablanco, you tell me